I'm glad to be back. Thank you. Can you all stand with me? Um, well, Kathy and I just got put down to the mat with that thing that went through. I shook too many hands at the door. And um, with me, it's always here, uh, bronchial stuff. And so we're on the other side. I would say I'm 92%. If I sound a little croaky, just croak with me. And so I'm going to, I think this might be a little easier on me. There we go. But we're good. And I, I so appreciate all the speakers. Gosh, let's see. Brandon and um, the noble David Shibley. And then Pastor Sonny Superman did a great job. And it's good to have people that can step in when you're gone. But I have so missed you. Now, you think I'm buttering you up. I am. But I really have. I miss my pulpit. I miss ministering and, and, uh, and did a lot of thinking, a lot of praying, a lot of reading, all things that you do silently. But anyway, we're going to look at Galatians tonight. How many of you are ready to get into the Word of God? Amen. All right, it's good to see Pastor Corey over here and Rochelle from North Elevation Church in Mansfield. And I think I've had it rough. He had a car wreck, totaled the car. He's limping around and I don't know what all broke his ankle. And so I looked at him and said, I'm fine. All right. Now, let's look up here at Galatians, and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Word of God that changes us, <clears throat> that re renews us, rearranges us, guides us and leads us and strengthens us. Thank you that faith comes by hearing your Word. And we pray you will speak to us tonight in Jesus' mighty name. Will you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, renew my mind. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him he heard that prayer. We're going to get into Galatians. You can be seated. Oh, it's clicker time. They're looking at me like, you're the one doing it there, dude. All right. Now, Galatians, Abba, Father. I love this part. Love the Word of God. Now, Galatians, let's recap a little bit. These passages in verses 4 and 5 are so important because it shows that our God is a God of timing. How many of you know that? Not just timing, perfect timing, exquisite timing, God timing. That's why there's a big difference between a good idea and a God idea. A God idea is brought by his timing. Now, it says, when the fullness of the time had come, Galatians 4 Verses 4 and 5. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, the phrase fullness of time is very, very powerful. When the time was perfectly ripe, the time which had been predicted, all through the Old Testament, all through the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, David, Moses, all through the Word of God, it had been predicted that God would send forth His Son, but it waited for the fullness of time. God's answer waited for a timing. Now, the exact period had arrived when all things were ready for His coming. Now, I want to take a little brief scan through Bible history. We did this last time. But I want you to understand the Word of God. I want you to know the Word of God. So real quick, jaunt through Bible history to see exactly what the times looked like preceding and up to the arrival of Jesus Christ. Because when he was born, it was the fullness of time, the perfect time, God's time. So what led up to it? The Old Testament chronology goes something like this. 
The human race lived for 2,000 years under a curse brought by a woman. That's not a slam against women. It's just she ate, and then he, he ate with his eyes wide open. She was deceived. Adam was in love. I don't know which is worse, right? But when she ate and they ate together, a curse came upon the human race. And then for 2,000 years, man after that lived under a curse brought by the law because the, the law revealed our sin. Christ has redeemed us from both the curse of the fall and from the curse of the law. Thank God for that. His advent took place in the fullness of time. Now, obviously, God had been in no hurry. From Adam to Noah, God allowed men to be led by or controlled by conscience to the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, he had said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, after they ate of that tree, they were led by conscience. But conscience terribly failed man. That's why the little phrase, let conscience, your conscience be your guide, is not a good one. Because your conscience can be programmed by the world where it's not bothered by things that bother God. Your conscience needs to be fine-tuned by the Word of God. Think about that. Now, so he was controlled by conscience from Adam until Noah. Now the result was catastrophic as appalling wickedness covered the globe, resulting in the flood. Catastrophic. And I'm going to be talking uh, on a weekend sometime soon about as it was in the days of Noah and as it was in the days of Lot. Because, boy, folks, are these times that we need to understand. Now, after the flood, an age of government was inaugurated with God placing into Noah's hands the sword of capital punishment for capital crime. So he told Noah, here's the principle, Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For the, in the image of God, he made man. So when you kill a human being, you're killing a creature made in the image of God. It's unlike any other thing God made. Now, this age stretched from Noah to Nimrod when it again climaxed in a further eruption of lawlessness and another massive judgment at the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel was led by Nimrod. And so from Noah to Nimrod, there was another leading up to Nimrod and the Tower of Babel, another massive judgment that God brought about. The human race was scattered far and wide following the confusion of tongues, carried with it the curse of idolatry as Nimrod's legacy. We're going to see that in Genesis, from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12, there were four epical events, four epic events, and they were the creation, the fall, the flood, the tower. Four epic events. Can we say them together? The creation the fall, the flood, and the tower. And then you come up to Genesis 12, and, and God pulls in tight on a man named Abram. And he begins working out the plan of salvation he predicted in Genesis 2 when he said there's going to be a bruiser of Satan's head. There's going to be one born devil that's going to bruise your head, and you're going to bruise his heel. And Jesus' heel was bruised at the cross. Now, God broke in again, determined to begin all over again with another man, Abraham. Now we're at Genesis 12. The age of promise began, and God's primary focus became the patriarchal family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he begins to really share with us the biographies of their life. Now next followed the migration to Egypt and the slow, steady decline of the Hebrew people into slavery to Egypt's government and compromise with Egypt's gods. Remember, they got into Egypt through Joseph. Joseph was led by God into, into Egypt so that the, the um, Messianic lineage would be spared because a great famine was coming upon the earth. God saw it coming, led Joseph into Egypt. He became second only to Pharaoh, 
And that little family of Jacob and his 12 sons mushroomed into a nation in 400 years. Okay? But uh, they compromised with Egypt's gods. They, They didn't really know the Lord anything like Moses would know the Lord. Now, the arrival of Moses marked the beginning of a brand new day. Israel was liberated from Egypt, but once again, they degenerated into idolatry. Folks, man without God will always decline into idolatry because we're wired to worship. We're going to worship something. And if we don't worship the true and the living God, we're going to find something to bow to. Guarantee you. In response, God gave the law, and he listed a catalog of curses into its demands. And the human family had failed. Now the Hebrew family failed. Not only did the human race fail in the days of Noah, but God's chosen people failed over and over and over and over again, chronically. They could not get it together. It's easy to trace the sad history of God's chosen people under the law. They degenerated into apostasy and immorality in the days of the judges. They experienced a partial revival under Samuel, then the dismal failure of King Saul, followed by an era bright with hope under David. But as with all things relating to humanity, it did not last. Now, you say, well, that's kind of depressing, Pastor Jeff. All it's showing us is that we had to have a Savior. We had to have a Redeemer. We could not live under the law. Couldn't obey it. Couldn't do it. Now, under Solomon, David's son, disastrous policies and horrific compromise with idolatry brought the nation down under God's judgment. The wise old King Solomon degenerated to a level that's hard to believe. He married too many women. He had 700 wives. That'd give any man a breakdown. 700 wives. Can you imagine Valentine's? I'm kidding. There was no Valentine's. But that's a lot of women. And they were pagan. And God had told them, his people do not intermarry with pagans. Do not marry unbelievers. They will corrupt you. Same message today. If you're a believer and you're, married, and you're dating an unbeliever, nip it tonight. End it. Say, Pastor Jeff, I'm in love. That's not a loving thing to do. You'll get out of love. Just end it. Because God is never going to tell you to marry an unbeliever. That's free. I might have saved you thousands of dollars in counseling right there. You don't even need to pray about it. If they're not a believer in Jesus Christ, there's nothing to pray about. Don't marry them. Don't do it. That's free. Everybody say amen. Well, you're kind of gnarly when you're sick, Pastor Jeff. No, I'm not sick, and I'm not being gnarly. I'm telling the truth. All right. But Solomon got to the place, it's hard to believe, this incredibly wise man, brilliant a renaissance-type man got to the place where he built altars for children to be sacrificed in the red-hot arms of Molech, put his seal of approval on it. You wonder, how could he have possibly descended to such a place? Wrong relationships. That's how. With Solomon, a divided king with a divided heart, left a divided kingdom. And it split into the northern and the southern kingdoms. Northern kingdom was Israel. Southern kingdom was Judah. The northern kingdom uh, consisted of 10 of the 12 tribes. And they spiraled into such apostasy so fast that they were uprooted under God's judgment and marched away under the Assyrian captivity. They were totally wiped out. The southern kingdom of Judah lurched back and forth between good kings and bad kings, between obedience and apostasy, ultimately following its sister Israel into captivity. And you can read about that captivity in the depressing book of Lamentations. Okay? Seventy years later, they were freed from Babylonian captivity and given another chance under a succession of godly leaders. Yet, as always, 
decline set in again. And by the time of Christ, the Jewish religion was totally, completely, vacuously bankrupt, rife with hypocrisy and empty religion. And when the fullness of time finally came, Judaism was a dead religion of rite and ritual, form and ceremony, tradition, and crushing legalism. And what about the Gentiles, you and me, our folks? What about us? The Gentile world was equally, totally, spiritually bankrupt when the fullness of time arrived for, G for God to send Jesus. We were bankrupt, like our country is today. Bankrupt, vacuous, lost, blind, the blind leading the blind. Gentile world, when Jesus came, was totally bankrupt. They were weary to death of their own bankrupt religions based on a pantheon of ridiculous, warring, lusting gods made in the image of lusting, warring men. The Greeks, with all their high-sounding philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Thucydides, you can name them, and all their classical culture had come and gone and their philosophy led not one person to God. Then the Romans had come. They hammered into subservience. Everybody who decided to resist them, and they imposed a Roman peace on the world. It was only peace by force. It was not inner peace. It was peace by force. Their law was iron-fisted. They built magnificent roads on the backs of a nation of slaves. The Romans did. The Roman idea of a holiday was to assemble in the amphitheater to watch gladiators fight to the death or wretched prisoners fight with bare hands against wild beasts to the accompaniment of the howls and the cheers of a blood-maddened populace. They had nothing on us. Violence ruled the day. To watch somebody torn to shreds by a wild animal was entertainment. When Jesus came on the scene, the fullness of time. Such was the fullness of time for the arrival of Christ. The world was morally and spiritually bankrupt. It was ripe for God to move. Amen? And move he did. Because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we can be called, say it with me, sons of God through adoption into the family of God. Now, verse 6, he says, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, say it with me. Let's try it better than that. Can we do something a little strange tonight? You know, when my kids were little, oh, those were the days. When my kids were little and I'd walk into the house, they'd come running up towards me. Daddy, daddy, daddy. Can we just hold our arms up towards the Lord? And I want you to say, Abba, Father. Now say, Daddy. Daddy. Isn't that good? Because that's what it is. Give the Lord a hand. That's good. It's not, it's not a religion we're in. It's a relationship. All right? Crying out, Abba, Father. This one verse shows what 1,500 years of law could not do for a lost son of Adam's ruined race. The law could not Make us sons of God. But Jesus did. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is what puts the believer into the family of God. This sonship was always God's plan. This is why Adam was called the son of God in Luke 3.38. Because originally it was God's intention that every human being on earth was his child. God gave to man something he did not give to any other of his creatures, a spirit. Unlike animals that are driven by instinct, man was to be governed by his spirit. You have a spirit, and that spirit is eternal. You've already begun eternal life. The minute you got saved, your eternal life began. The spirit in you is eternal. I hate to say it. I've searched the scriptures. Dogs don't have one. Rabbits don't have one. 
Birds don't have one. Now, Pastor Jeff, are you telling me my dog's not going to be with me? Whatever it takes to make you happy, you will have it. But you're unique because God gave you, says he breathed into man, and man became a living soul. Unlike animals that are driven by instinct, man was originally designed to be governed by the Spirit of God. But when sin entered, the Holy Spirit vacated the human spirit, leaving men with no governing principle outside their own senses, emotion, intellect, and will. We wonder how people can do the things they do in our day because they're totally separated from God. Totally detached, totally unplugged, don't know him, have none of his life in them, and you never will until you come to him through Christ. When a person turns to Christ, God's original plan is restored. That person is cleansed from his sin, and the Holy Spirit once again takes up residence in his human spirit. Isn't that beautiful? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and all has become new. All looks new. All is new because you're a new creation. Paul says, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. And so we cry out, let's say it again. Abba, Father, we say this because at that moment, we are literally birthed by God. Right then, the minute you're saved and the Spirit comes to live inside of you, you are God-birthed. He is literally your daddy. We are born again. Now, the word Abba, out of Abba Father, it's an Aramaic word found only here. And in Mark 14, 36, and Romans 8, 15. So it's only found in three places in the word. It was a word that was forbidden to household slaves when they would refer to the head of the family. If you were a slave, you could not say to the head of the family, Abba. It was for only children, only the children, only the real flesh and blood children. This reminds us that under the law, we were likened unto slaves. Abba is the word that flows from the lips of a small child. It was the Old Testament equivalent of the English word daddy. Daddy. Father. You know when Jesus started using that word father, it was brand new. People would look at him and say, say what? Father? He's God. No, he's your father. And it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's your father. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He taught us to view God as daddy, father. Now, the next word, father, is from the Greek word meaning provider, protector, and supporter. It was the Lord's favorite word for God. He taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer. Let's, let's say it together real quickly. Our Father, who art in heaven, the Holy Spirit sent forth into our hearts, teaches us to use these two words, Abba, Father, Abba, Daddy. And that means he's going to care for you. He's going to protect you, as the word means. He's going to provide for you. He's going to support you. He knows what you need. He knows where you are. He knows the battles you're fighting. He knows the bills you've got to pay. He knows the questions you need answered. God knows. He's your Daddy. He's your Father. Trust him. Amen? He taught us to use, uh, or I'm sorry, Paul adds in, ver in verse 7, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. We are no longer slaves under the law, but we are sons under grace. Thank God. Now, next, Paul turns to their betrayal of the gospel of grace. Now, remember, the Galatians had begun to defect. Paul's shocked. He can't believe it. He led these people to Christ, taught them the message of grace, 
And in his absence, Judaistic teachers have come in. And it began to seduce them away from the simplicity that is in Christ. And to me, the strongest verse in the whole book, the strongest phrase, it's only four words. Who has bewitched you? What spell have you come under, he says to the Galatians? Having begun under grace, are you now complete, made complete under the law? He said, what's the matter with you? What are you thinking? Where have you been? How this happened so easy? Have you ever known somebody you want to look at them and say, who has bewitched you? If, if I could talk to the whole nation of America, I would look right in that TV lens and I would say, who, America, has bewitched you? Having begun in God, do you now finish in humanism? I could go on. And Kathy knows I could go on and totally leave the rest of this and preach the rest of the night about our country. But I can't. I'm here to teach Galatians. But, but you got to wonder, who has bewitched the American people? Having been blessed by God in the beginning, given the greatest nation on the earth, now we kick God out of every public arena, tell him we don't need him, and we wonder why or where he was when children are slaughtered in schools. Excuse me, didn't we ask him to leave? Here we go. <clears throat> Abba Father is a gentleman. He will not force himself on you. Now, Paul turns to their betrayal of the gospel of grace that he had first preached to them and under which they had been saved. He says in verse 8, But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. How many of you had an idol in your life, B.C.? The rest of you need to wake up because you did. You had something. Have you ever seen a rock concert? Have you ever been to a rock concert? Have you ever watched the way they are worshipped by that crowd? Oh, yeah, we, we had an idol. We, we all had an idol. And he's saying to them, you serve things which it ended up were not even gods. Now, the apostle is taking them back to the way they were. They had served gods that were not real, false gods, idols. And they had been raw pagans, worshiping gods of their own making. And you and I, we came out of paganism. People say to me, what were you raised in? I say, paganism. I was pagan. Some of you were raised in church, but you were little pagans in church. You were there singing the hymns and all of that, but during the week, you was a pagan, right? Now... Here's the deal. He's saying in the Galatians, you were serving things that were not gods. And let me show you what the psalmist says about idols in Psalms 115. He says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, they don't hear you. Noses they have but they don't have smell. They don't smell anything. Now, he's obviously talking about these little idols that we have all seen in movies and whatnot where idolaters make these little figurines, these little wooden idols, and they got ears and they got eyes and they have noses and mouths, but they can't speak, hear, taste, or see. They're dead. They're meaningless, and yet they worship them. The psalmist goes on. They have hands, but they don't handle they have feet, but they don't walk. They do not mutter through their throat. In other words, they can't talk to you. Those who make them are exactly like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Now, it might surprise many people to know that just because they don't worship some little figurine does not mean they're not idolaters. Idolatry is the practice of putting anything in the place of God in your life. Now, let me go back and say that again. Because you can be a believer and get an idol. Some of you, it's American Idol. But there's an idol out there. Isn't it funny? People want to be an idol. I want to be American's idol. Uh, America's idol. I don't. I want America to find the real Christ. But watch this. Idolatry 
is the practice of putting anything in the place of God in your life. If Jesus said number one, something is. And whatever is number one instead of him is an idol, if I can be real blunt. If, if Jesus is not number one, first place, preeminent, Lord of your life, something else is, and it may just be you. You may be the idol. Money can be the idol. Fame can be the idol. Achievement can be the idol. Another human being can be an idol. It's the practice of putting anything in the place of God in your life. We can worship money, sex, fame, self, gods of other religions. And that's idolatry. And an interesting passage in Revelation reveals that at the end of time, men are going to be addicted to idolatry. Watch this. This is Revelations, the end of time, right before God wraps up history as we have known it. It says, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship what? Worship demons and idols. Look at this. Idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. All of these judgments are falling all around them, and yet they still refuse to repent. And look what he reveals, John, by the Spirit of God. In the end of time, men will still be worshiping idols of wood and silver and gold. That could be talking about money. That could be talking about your bank account. That could be talking about a 401K. That can be talking about anything that has taken the place of God. And it's alive and well when Jesus comes. Idolatry. So idolatry is not just a phenomenon taking place in the dark shadows of some isolated African village steeped in superstition and voodoo. Idolatry is alive and well right now. See, we're all going to worship something. Now, what I'd like to ask you and ask the radio audience is, what are you worshiping? Not just on a weekend, but Monday through Friday, what is preeminent in your heart and mind? The Bible says, let a man examine himself and see if he be in the faith. And do you know that I could go into a lot of churches, a lot of, a lot of buildings that have church on the outside, maybe denominational, they may be huge. They may have tons of money, beautiful structure. But I could go in there and talk about making Jesus Lord, and they would throw me out. So used to, I never even thought about asking a church crowd, have you examined yourself to see if you're in the faith? Is the Lord Jesus Christ number one in your life? Or are we worshiping something else? I think America is worshiping a lot of things, but not God. And I don't believe this stuff that 90% say they're Christian. I want to know what Bible they read. What Bible are they reading? They're not reading my Bible. Idolatry is alive and well right now. There's people getting up every day worshiping something other than him. Paul is saying to the Galatians, that's the way you were. But you were slaves to idols, but then Jesus set you free. Can we just thank the Lord he set us free? Go ahead and praise him. Thank God that he set you free. He has set us free. Now, he says in verses 9 to 10, but now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it you turn again to the weak and the beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? He said, what are you doing? You were saved by grace, saved by the blood, and now you're going back to the way you were. God forbid. If you're a believer, you're different. You think different, walk different, talk different, act different. You are different. He says, here's the deal. Look at what you're doing. You observe days and months 
and seasons and years. Now, when he talks about the weak and the beggarly elements, what does that mean? You, you have gone back to the, to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire going to be in bondage. What does that mean? The weak and beggarly, beggarly elements refers to the barest rudiments of revealed truth, the elementary stage of God's dealings with men. It was the same as a grown man used to eating steak and roast beef only to return to strain baby food. Can you imagine some friends calling you and saying, hey, you want to go out to eat this Friday? Yeah, where do you want to go? Hey, we got some excellent baby food at home. We got carrots. We got peaches. We've got, hey, it is good stuff. You say, wait a minute. No, no, no. You're talking to a grown adult. I want steak. Take me to Del Frisco. Take me to Saltgrass. I want steak. I have teeth. I eat real food. Paul is saying, Galatians, you ought to be eating real food. But you're going back to strain baby food. What are you doing? Paul now sees Judaism. Look at how he's viewing Judaism. And its legalism as so completely obsolete, he uses contemptuous words, weak, beggarly, to describe it. It's important, says Paul, to do anything for you. Grace has saved you. Or it's, it's impotent, rather, says Paul, to do anything for you. Grace has saved you, not law. And, folks, that's the way we ought to look at our past. There's nothing back there. Now, I don't know what your background is, but we've all got one. We all came out from somewhere. And I guarantee you, on one level or another, it was sinful. We should never look back at that and say, you know, I should mix a little bit of what I knew with what I know now. I should mix a little bit of paganism with Christianity. A little bit of, you know, I've been a little too churchy. I've been too little, a little bit too religious. Uh, I need to loosen up some and, and kind of begin to return to what I used to do. No, you ought to look at it with contempt. Because it killed you, almost killed you, almost took you to hell. There's nothing there for you. There's nothing in your past. The Red Sea has closed behind you. The enemy of your soul has been destroyed by the cross. You have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, filled with the Holy Spirit. There's nothing to ever return to. The only position and direction for a Christian is forward. And that's it. So, Paul is saying, what are you doing going back, man? What's wrong with you? Grace saved you, not law. And this is what the Galatians have been willing to exchange for the glorious adoption as sons that set them in the royal family of heaven. How is it you turn again? Paul wants to know. The beguiled Galatians have begun to observe days and months and times and years. These kinds of things are what regulated Old Testament faith. They had actually taken up the Jewish religious calendar again as a guide for their godliness. <laughs> they had begun observing the annual feasts and the fast days, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, tabernacles, and Purim were on their radar screen again. Paul said, What are you doing? Jesus obliterated all of that, Jesus buried all of that, Jesus did away with all that. All these things had absolutely nothing to do with Christianity. Paul expresses deep concern. He said, I'm afraid for you. Now, paraphrased, you're freaking me out. You're freaking me out. Lest I have labored for you in vain. And now he's starting to think, did I waste my time with these people? Have they really let it all go? Was all this work that I did for nothing? Some of his children in the faith were in danger of apostasy. Apostasy, here's what it is, is the sin of knowing the truth and deliberately turning away from it to embrace a lie. In the latter days, said Paul by the Spirit, men shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. That's what he's talking about, apostasy. You knew Christ. You knew the blood. You knew the word. 
You knew who he was. Yet now you're leaving that to go to an idol, to a false teaching, a false doctrine, a false philosophy, a false God. That's apostasy. Yet others were in danger of being deceived in the Galatian church. Although not losing their salvation, they were in danger of being trapped in a life of defeat and discouragement and disappointment. Paul said, I don't want to see that for you. Once you know Jesus, it's Jesus, 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 and more Jesus. The apostle will use anything legitimate to turn them back. You read Galatians, and I hope you are. Um, go through it in your devotional times. You'll find he uses doctrine. He uses reproof. He uses sarcasm. He uses divine logic, and he uses scripture. But he's also going to make a personal appeal based on the love they had for him. Now he's about to make it personal. He says in verses 12 through 16, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You're injuring yourself is what he's saying. You know that because of, of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first and my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. But you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Wow. He said, I want you folks who are listening to these Judaizers and going back to that old dead religion, I want you to remember the way you and I were together. You loved me. You received me like I was an angel. You received me like I was the second best thing to Jesus Christ. We had, we had it going on spiritually. I was your apostle, your preacher, your pastor, the man of God God gave to you, and you loved me. And he reminds them that when he preached to them, he had a trial in his flesh. And we're going to read about it right now. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Now, this has caused huge controversy. Many commentators believe many different things. Good men believe different things. We don't know what the problem was, except we know that Paul, when he wrote with his hand, he wrote huge because he really had terrible vision. And yet there was something more when he went to Galatia. There was something that he was dealing with that had to do with his eyes that was actually repulsive, revolting. Uh, you, you had a tendency to turn away and not look. Don't know what it was. We could probably get an ophthalmologist in here and say, what do you think it was? And he could have given us some real good ideas. But it was an affliction. Paul said it was a trial. And he said, in spite of a revolting physical affliction. You received me like an angel. You loved me anyway. It didn't matter to you. And if you could have, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given me an eye transplant. It's love. See what he's doing? He's saying, you have you forgotten me? Paul, remember, you love me. What are you doing listening to these false teachers? Have I therefore become your enemy? He says, because I tell you the truth. What a great passage for our day. Well, you tell me the truth, you're a hater. I'm not a hater. I'm a lover. If I don't tell you the truth, I'm a hater. If I love you, I'm going to tell you the truth. If I don't love you, sayonara. God bless. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Have a great train wreck. But if I love you, I'm going to say, you know what? You may never talk to me again, but I'm going to tell you the truth. Paul says to them, if I become your enemy because I'm jumping in now and telling you that you're about to apostatize, that you're about to walk away from the faith, 
that you're about to lose it all? He said, I don't think so. Paul is bringing to their memory that when he preached the gospel to them, he'd been handicapped by some kind of an illness. Just kind of repeating a little bit here. We don't know what it was, except it did affect his eyesight. They would have plucked out their own eyes and given them to him. He reminds them of just how much they had loved him. You did not despise or reject me, he says. Frankly, the text suggests that not only was the affliction a sore trial to Paul, but was of such a nature as would be repulsive to others, yet they had received him as an angel of God. In light of these things, has he now become their enemy because he tells them the truth of what they have done, where they're going, what the consequence is going to be? I'm loading up for bear. I can't tell you. I can't express it fully. I am loading up for bear. By God's grace, we're going to speak to as much of this nation this year as we possibly can. And I'm loading up for bear. I'm studying that Bible inside out. I'm studying the, the different arguments they're presenting against God and against God in public and against the the sheer wisdom of God. I'm loading up for bear to answer it, and I'm going to tell the truth. The truth. Because, man, I'll tell you, truth is on the endangered species list in America anymore. Somebody's got to tell the truth. And I guarantee you Jesus did, the apostles did, and the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to tell the truth. Now, love tells the truth. We're told in today's culture to be tolerant of others, which translated has come to mean, don't judge the lifestyles of others. If you do, it's hateful. Who are you to judge my lifestyle? Because your truth is yours and mine is mine. And what I consider true is true for me. And what you consider true is true for you. Don't cramp my style with your truth. The reason we're there is because of relativism. Everything is relative. We have done away with the whole idea that there's any such thing as an absolute, eternal, unchanging, unbowing truth. But there is. There is an ultimate truth, and it comes from the mouth of God, and it's in the Bible. So, but the watchword for today is tolerant. Be tolerant. You've got to be tolerant of everything and everybody. Don't say a word about anybody's lifestyle. The doctrine of tolerance is live and let live. That is, unless you happen to be a Christian. Have you noticed that? Then it's okay to hate and judge and criticize and castigate and condemn. Matter of fact, Christians are the only fair game in America anymore. You can't criticize Islam. You can't criticize homosexuality. You can't criticize lesbianism. You can't criticize humanism. You can't criticize any of the idols our culture has selected to worship. But you can criticize a Christian. You can tear them apart, call them bigots and haters and everything under the sun. Oh, our nation is in so much trouble, church. But Paul would disagree as far as truth not or love not being truthful, he would disagree. He would say love tells the truth because the truth brings freedom. Let's stand together, can we? How many of you know that truth brings freedom? It does, doesn't it? Amen. I want us to pray tonight and, you know, thank God that he really has buried our past behind us. There really isn't anything back there. We are dead with Christ and our life is hidden with Christ in God. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we're to live like it and walk like it and think like it and talk like it and share it. Because we're in a hungry world. Amen? Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you that God is good.
And Lord, as we see what Paul dealt with in this Galatian church that experienced such an attack of the enemy that Satan sought to take them out before they had a chance to grow in Christ. And they almost apostatized. They almost walked away. They were almost seduced into deception. And yet, Lord, they were spared by the truth and by a truthful man. Lord, in Jesus' name, help Turning Point to be a truthful church filled with truthful people who love enough to tell the truth. And Lord, help us to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And Lord, I want to pray as the pastor of this church with other pastors with me. Help us, Lord, to stay true to that simple gospel of Christ. To not be lured away by the many seductive voices that are in the land. To not be pressured by peer pressure to give in and compromise your word. but that we would stay strong and true, loving you and loving people. Thank you, Lord, for the faith once delivered to the saints. Can we just lift our hands and say, Lord, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ who came to the earth, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, was crucified for our sins, rose from the dead, is now seated at God's right hand, and will soon return to gather his bride. Help us to cling to it and cleave to it and protect that truth in Jesus' name.